Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. A wealthy man of power, a tempting and valuable but highly illegal product, an insatiable lust for thrills, money, and taking control of it all. Along with a crew of Southern gentlemen, they use their connections and cash to run the largest guns-for-drugs operation in the United States history. What happened next has inspired one of the most exciting monster movies of 2023. This week's episode is The Life and Death of Drew Thornton and Cocaine Bear, Part 1. Fills with dread, probably a murderer who wants you dead. It could be a ghost, a demon, or worse. Perhaps you're the victim of a witch's curse. It's hopeless, you're doomed. You'd call a priest if you could. You'd rather just listen to who? Sinisterhood. Well, we were in the forest recently, but we didn't see any bears, sober or otherwise. No, didn't see any bears. Would love to see a bear. Don't want to see one that's hopped up on Coke. No, I've seen uh, black bears. I thought saw like 13 black bears when I was in the Smoky Mountains a few years ago, just in various clumps. And they're so docile and seem so sweet. Were any of them doing rails, just <laughs> snorting off another bear's butt? Yeah, you know what? One of them did bend over and stood back up like... <laughs> Just so. had white all over his snout. <laughs> yeah, I think I think that might have been what's going on. It was around this area. All this stuff has happened where my kinfolk is in Tennessee, kind of nearby. Not in Tennessee, but... Georgia, yeah. Georgia, Kentucky, Tennessee, that whole area up in there. Those woods, man. A lot can go down in those woods that... There's some stuff that goes down in those woods. Oh, yeah. A lot of there's a lot of tree cover and then a lot of people, folks putting up fences and putting up signs with their fences saying, don't bother. Don't, don't come, come in looking. here. Don't, mm-hmm. If you don't if you need to know where I live, then, you know, otherwise yeah. you don't need to know. Be like, how do I get in there? If you needed to, I would have told you. Yeah. But otherwise, keep it walking. <laughs> and even it doesn't matter if you're saying that to a neighbor or the federal government. <laughs> They say the same thing. Or uh, a bear that happens to just stumble upon something. And we'll get to the bear in part two and the movie, which we've both watched. Yes. Wild Ride. Yeah. If you, and that, this is an announcement that we will discuss Cocaine Bear in part two. So you have plenty of time if you want to watch it and not get spoiled to watch it between now and then. Yes. So we will not spoil it for you between now and then. And you should watch it. It's oh, a yeah. it's a fun wild ride. I would give it a eight. Yeah, I will say if um, blood and gore is not your thing, this Agreed. might might not be the movie for you. It was way bloodier than I thought it was going to be, and showing more graphic things than. Yeah. Although it's called Cocaine Bear, but I still didn't know that there would be zooming in on the things that were zoomed in on. It was very very graphic. Yeah, you know, like I watched the accidental edit of Shape of Water. Like, I didn't know I was watching an edited version with all the 
fish sex scenes taken out. The best parts? I, apparently, I watched it on an airplane. If you're on an airplane, watch Cocaine Bear on an airplane because surely they'd cut all that out. And you <laughs> well, just... it'll be a 10-minute movie. <laughs> That's right. And then you it's can short... spend the rest of the flight just Googling what I miss. Uh, or listen to this, uh, the, these two episodes because we'll tell you not only what you missed in that movie, but also what all happened before that, which... This is one of those tales when you pull a thread. It just keeps Yeah, and it involves a lot of players, some of which are big names that we've been asked to cover in other episodes. So you'll hear some mentions of them as well. It's all It goes all the way to the Colonel, Colonel Sanders. <laughs> that is. Turns out the drug industry, you know, it's kind of like Chicago. They say it's the biggest little city. The drug industry, everybody kind of knows everybody. Everybody knows what's going on. So you, you every, every now and then, pass cross, and you get two big players involved in something. They're like, it's a tight-knit community. The <laughs> drug smuggling, we're, we're a family. We're a family. Just like an improv club is a tight-knit community. <laughs> this is a really tight-knit community. We all like support each other and help out whenever somebody needs it, which is true, Mm-hmm. But also everybody has a machine gun and is a criminal. Yeah, and are willing to fly planes full of God knows what all over the place. I wrote my law review comment on this era of law enforcement because there's there was a significant number of legal cases coming out of this because of so many private planes flying from America to Colombia and coming back with drugs. And there was issues of, are you able to search them when they land? And so there was a number of cases in the Southeastern United States, in Florida, Georgia, even up and through Kentucky, Tennessee, about planes coming in and cops being like, we know for sure there are drugs on this plane. We There's just no way there's not drugs on this plane. We just don't have a warrant and need to search it. And, and first blush, having not gone lived through that era, I was like, that seems wrong. That the and it is wrong. Read my law review comments, like forty pages of why it's wrong. But I had no idea it was so prevalent, and it was it became so profitable at the time. And money and guns and drugs were just pouring in, kind of because the U.S. government. It was like half of it the government knew it was going on, and half of it was like, oh, we got to stop this. And the other half's like, don't stop anything. Don't worry about it. We need them. We need them to help us. Everyone thinks America runs on Duncan, but what we really run on is drugs, guns, and power. Yeah, big ass piles of white powder like Scarface style. (laughs) Yeah. Well, we're going to get into all of that and part two, we'll continue it and get into Cocaine Bear. So watch that between now and next week. Yeah, don't miss that between now and next week. And we're going, we were in the forest already back in uh, March, or not March. Yeah, early March. What month is it? It's what still day March, is it? yeah. And still March. Yeah, early March, we were in the Pacific Northwest Forest. We're about to be in the Rocky Mountains. We're going to have to figure out a way to go to the Smoky Mountains and, and, and mm. then go to the Chattahoochee National Forest and do a little cocaine bear hunting of our own because we're we're stopping at all these places across the country and getting really good advice on where to go. I think I am putting it on the list. I want to go see the stuffed cocaine bear, which we'll talk about in part Okay. Two. All right. I just want to go to the Chattahoochee. Yeah. Way well, down Way down south. yonder. Yeah. <laughs> Chattahoochee. Never knew how much those muddy waters meant to me. Hell yeah. But I learned how to swim and I learned who I was. And Heather, a lot about living. But a little. About love. About love. Yeah. That's right. And that's Damn. what this episode is going to be too. A lot Fair about living, a little about love, mostly about drugs. 
Yeah, that song slaps, though. It does. <laughs> now, if you put that song over this man flying this airplane across the country, I was like, that's the American dream, baby. <laughs> of course, it came out like 25 years later, but a lot about living in a... Yeah, Alan Jackson, man, a king, a king among men. <laughs> well, Alan, we hope you're listening and uh, the rest of you as well. Thank you so much. As always, I am Christy. I'm Heather. And let's get into it. Andrew Carter Thornton III was born October 30, 1944, in the inner bluegrass region of Kentucky in Bourbon County. His father, Carter Thornton, hailed from New Jersey, while his mother, Margaret Peggy Cummins Thornton, was born in Connecticut. From an early age, Andrew lived a privileged life, being raised on a thoroughbred horse farm near Lexington, Kentucky, where his family raised racing horses. The Thornton's connections to the horse racing world allowed them an easier-than-normal route into the exclusive Kentucky social circles. And that's kind of the overarching thing in Lexington is who's your daddy, who's your granddaddy, how are you connected? that's the South. Yeah, but they said in Kentucky because it's the it's the empire of money and racehorses and the breeding, the idea, it's creepy when you think about it, that they're all about, well, who's what horse lineage did this come mm-hmm. from? Because the best horse comes from the best lineage. But all these people are like, oh, well, you're from this family. You're from the best lineage. I'm like, that's kind of gross. You're comparing people to horses. Well, and it's also, there's a lot of... I'm not a horse breeder, so I'm not going to get into it. But yeah, it's kind of it's kind of weird keeping the lineage and all that and how they breed with what and and whatnot. But just like in South Carolina, like these southern places, if you come from a long line of power and money, then you ostensibly are set up for until you decide on your own to go and fuck it up. Yeah, until you say this isn't enough. And also, if you're coming from New Jersey and Connecticut, you don't have an entree in unless you are giving them the best, nicest horses. And then it's like, oh, go on down to the Thorntons. They've got mm-hmm. you. And then you've been elevated through your horse, just making them horses fuck. <laughs> it's how you get rich, powerful, and famous. I told you that town. I once had a dream about, it was the year of the Kentucky Derby where the horse, they had to put it down on the field. Because it brought, like broke its leg racing. Oh. I dreamed that happened two weeks before it happened. Wow. I was Did you there. know it was that horse? No. I just remember like being in the stands and a horse, something happened and they like had to bring out a tent and. Damn. That's put so it down. sad. Yeah. Never been though. I've always kind of wanted to go to the Kentucky Derby, get a big ass weird hat and just drink some mint juleps and be like, well, I do declare. And they're like, ma'am, could you go? (laughs) Yeah. Tommy's got to wear a seersucker suit. Okay. We're all going to go dressed to the nines. Get some tall socks on. (laughs) And you know what? Horses bring gambling. And so all of a sudden everybody wants to throw their money down on the ponies. Mm -hmm. So then you have... Rich people wanting to bet on the bet on the winning horse, so it's it becomes kind of a den of iniquity. Oh yeah, I've been to horse races and done gambling, not in a long time, but um, I can see just like any gambling where the thrill and excitement and addiction starts to come in. Oh, I always say I don't care about this, but if there's gambling involved, I'm like suddenly very in. Mm-hmm. <laughs> the Thorntons had three children, two sons and a daughter. Their oldest was Andrew, called Drew by his friends. Drew was a big help to his father around the farm, though he would later describe that he feared his father, who spent the early years of Drew's life serving in the military. Yeah, he said he had he was lukewarm to his mom. He feared his dad, but he loved his maternal grandmother because they lived with her while 
dad was in the military. So you get that early attachment and then it's like, well, dad's back. So bye, grandma. Mm, yeah. You're kind of ripped heart. from the person that you've come accustomed to raising you. And then dad's home from the military and you got to switch gears and live under those rules. As a child, Drew was described as a shy kid who was painfully awkward, according to the book The Bluegrass Conspiracy by author Sally Ditton. He was an average kid, but a loner who stayed to himself and would appear distant to those around him. However, around 10 years old, Drew became more of a risk taker. He began chasing thrills like jumping from high places or becoming interested in skydiving. Once Drew found his passion as a daredevil, his personality shifted. Yeah, he decided to jump from a hayloft, and the book said, quote, wearing only a Superman cape, and I don't know if that means, like, and not a parachute or and not anything else. I took it to mean Superman cape, birthday suit. Done and done. And as a kid, you know, when we would spend Tennessee summers in Tennessee or go and visit my cousins, I remember my cousins climbing on the shed and having a plastic grocery bag, like, the type that's outlawed in many cities now. And they were up there and they're like, we're going to do it. And these are our parachutes. <laughs> and there was some rolled ankles that day. Got to be a real thick plastic to, or a really not. lightweight child. Neither. It was the one of those. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you bags. Oh not yeah. The no, that you're going down, no. going down into the ground with those. That's and that's what we did. <laughs> Soon, friends described Drew as a master manipulator who would play mind games to exert power over others. He was called Mercurial for his unpredictable temper. Those in his close circle, meanwhile, loved him fiercely and were known to do anything for him. Drew was known for helping out friends going through hard times. While these acts seemed altruistic, others suspected he was only helping so that he could call in return favors for himself later. And that was one thing that I noticed friends now in the, you know, in the past couple of years being interviewed about him were just like, he was just a neat guy. He would do anything for you. I loved him and he was dashing and fatherly and kind. And you're like, well, he was kind of an international arms dealer. It's kind of like Larry Ray. Mm-hmm. Everyone at first was like, oh yeah, he was charming and wheeled and dealed and wined and dined. Eventually, your true colors are going to show. And oh, yeah. you can only keep up like the Southern gentleman hotshot facade for so long before everyone starts to see the cracks. Oh, yeah. And the, hey, remember I did that favor for you? Now do it for mm-hmm. me. Drew attended the county high school for his freshman year, but behavior issues had his parents looking for an alternative solution. They sent their son to the Sewanee Military Academy in Sewanee, Tennessee. This esteemed institution was known for raising the next generation of Southern gentlemen. Drew was not much of a student at this school either, making C's or nearly failing all of his classes. There, Drew met Bradley Bryant, a well-connected and wealthy kid from one of Lexington's old guard political families. Classmates described Bradley as a leader, while Drew was more his follower, according to Ditton's book. I thought it was telling that later on, Drew selected Bradley as his best man, but Bradley did not select Drew as his best man. That's so kind of a punch in the gut. Kind of shows. Yeah, Which for- yeah, you feel a certain type of way when you get asked to do something very meaningful and personal on one of the most important days of your life, and then that feeling isn't returned. Although at the same time, are if 
you aren't as close to them as they may be to you, should you be forced to ask them to be a part of something that really you'd rather somebody else do? Yeah. And if the descriptions from classmates are right, it was kind of more of a Bradley was doing his own thing and Drew's more like, yeah, yeah, what are, you, what are we doing next, man? And so if it doesn't feel like a relationship of equals, it probably, Bradley probably doesn't feel like Drew's mm-hmm. as close of a friend. You're like, oh, you're kind of a follower. Yeah, I think he viewed him as a follower and someone that was beneath him. Mm-hmm. Little buddy. Well, and especially too, because Drew got his cachet from just his current parents like the parents right above him he didn't have some long lineage Mm -hmm. of oh well i'm from one of these families yeah those southern family roots they run deep people thinking that just like the 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 family pride and and everything which it doesn't make sense to me because I've known plenty of people from good families who are pieces of shit. Oh, yeah. And plenty of great people who came from a whole cadre of bastards yeah. back from, you know, down their lineage. So I think we all, man makes his own destiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. As Billy you, Zane would say. Just because your great, great, great granddaddy did something awesome that got everybody a ton of land, you, you didn't do shit. You didn't even know him. <laughs> People, especially if I may, uh, rednecks who love the Confederate flag, give like Uncle Rico vibes of like, mm-hmm. my great, 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 great granddaddy was a general. I'm like, well, you were rebellious taking out of your pants <laughs> with your stained tank top. Yeah. And that looks like a warm, natty light. So yeah. <laughs> forgive me for not considering you royalty. Maybe <laughs> maybe you can accomplish something and not hang your hat on that. Mm-hmm. Go hang that uh, racist hat up. And put on one that your great-great-great-granddaddy would have been proud of. Right. Sinisterhood will be right back. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli. I guess. Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Drew headed to the University of Kentucky after graduation from the Military Academy. According to the Bluegrass Conspiracy, he hated his classmates at UK for their relaxed attitudes, despite his view that America, who was engaged in a cold war with Russia, was under attack. Fed up with academic life, in 1963, Drew enlisted in the Army, dropping out of college after only one semester. He told recruiters he wanted to be a paratrooper and was assigned to Fort Bragg, North Carolina. He served for two years, even fighting against an insurgents in the Dominican Republic, before receiving a Purple Heart and honorable discharge in 1965 after being shot in the left arm during the line of duty. And I think he thought that the military academy, because his dad was a military guy and imparted that on him on the farm, he got excited and into it. And if you have your classmates 
they said they were smoking pot on campus or going to parties. He had this irritation yeah. like, do you not know the Bay of Pigs just happened <laughs> and you were out having a good time? Well, yeah, I am. You're like, and I'm a that's freshman. my right. And if you want to <laughs> sign up and go fight for our country, that's your right. Yeah. It's also like I'm I'm a philosophy major. I don't know what I'm going to be able to do. But yeah. He just, he was very, also it's a Cold War, so he was pretty riled up though. It's, I think, very telling too that he was fearful of his father, I'm sure wanted to make him proud and maybe always felt a bit like he was letting him down. So this was going to be kind of a move to show like, oh, look, dad, I'm following in your footsteps. Yeah. And they said that his little brother was more of the golden child that Drew has got that, you know, oh, he's the second. He's going to be junior. He's going to bring glory to the family name and was kind of failing out of everything. And so the younger brother was tip top shape, always great at the farm, did everything mom and dad said, never broke the rules. And so then it became, oh, yeah, Drew, you're never going to be as Mm. good as your little brother. So it's like, well, I'll be a war hero. Then will you be happy? It's a tough thing for a kid to grow up in the shadow of a sibling or feeling like they're never living up to what their parents think their potential is. I'm not saying that justifies his later actions, but we've seen in many cases that's kind of like how these things start. Yeah, you set off a, I'll show you. Mm-hmm. Drew returned to the University of Kentucky and studied political science, but once again found that campus life was not for him and dropped out for a second time in 1966. He worked for his dad training thoroughbred racehorses until he met and married Betty Ziering, a gorgeous blonde schoolteacher from Shelby County, Kentucky, who believed she had psychic powers. Betty later described Drew to author Sally Denton, saying, He was a philosophical, incredibly disciplined, extremely spiritual, and loyal warrior with his own code of ethics who thrived on excitement. This is where we start to see, oh, there it is. It's yeah. the, oh, okay. Well, things have started to take a turn when he's very into this woman who, if she believes she has psychic powers, good for her. But this is the first kind of like, what's going on now? Yeah, it was definitely a record scratch when I was listening to the audiobook. I was like, what? She says she has what kind of what now? Yeah. And, <laughs> and that he's into that. And, you know, this is something that they kind of start to bond over like the supernatural and that's when more of these interests start to come out and his own code of ethics which plays into his everyday life yeah he's got his own ninja warrior code of ethics Mm. um yeah i thought it was interesting that his family too would kind of buy these i don't want to say lines like they're all making it up but if she had a genuine good faith belief that she had psychic powers the family was like yeah betty had psychic powers yeah she can tell tell the future well she should have been able to tell that they're about to get divorced then. Yeah, and also that uh, he had quite a life ahead. <laughs> yeah, she should have said, you know what? I think that you may want to just let's try a different path because the one you're about to head down, not going to go anywhere good. Let's cool your jets, cool your jets. Because he dropped Literally. out of the UK. Cool and then- those jets. <laughs> And then I think he just felt this draw toward if he wasn't going to be in the military, he wanted some sort of power and authority. And in 1967, he went to another smaller university and just got like a a law enforcement degree because I think he was just obsessed with structure, rigidity, levels, rankings. And power and feeling like you're making a difference and you Uh are in a a position of authority. And thrill-seeking too. Oh, yeah. In 1968, Drew began working as an officer for the Lexington-Fayette Urban County Police Department. 
He was also saving up to buy his own airplane and told his wife and family he was secretly working for the CIA, a fact which they all believed. By 1970, Drew was assigned to the department's narcotics unit. One agent who worked with Drew described him to the Washington Post as a paramilitary-type personality and an adventurer driven by adrenaline rushes. 1968 was also the year he and Betty got divorced on amicable terms. I think he started feeling like, okay, I can play commando here at home. Like, I can put this uniform on, bully people, I get a gun, I get a cool siren on my squad car. He liked military apparatus and stuff. Mm -hmm. So I think this was like the perfect thing of like, if you love what you do, you never work a day in your life. True, true. Once he was assigned narcotics, Drew found himself part of an ongoing scam within that unit. Drew and other officers would bust people for possession, then take the confiscated contraband and sell it on the streets. He used this money to begin collecting spy gadgets. Feeling he was a modern-day ninja, Drew began calling himself Act Two, a third-person nickname comprised of his initials. He also spoke in cryptic parables and believed he had supernatural abilities. All right, well, it's one thing to want to go into the military and be an officer, but... You're already starting to see, like, this isn't going to end well. This is all going to just snowball into something that is unmanageable. Takes a turn. Also, we glossed over the fact that he told his family that he worked for the CIA. And they were like, good for you. Good for you. Which I guess some things in the CIA, you can be like, I work for the CIA. But if you're like an undercover agent, nobody knows that. It's like Fight Club. Rule one, you don't. You can't tell tell people. Like, even even your family like, I had a good friend in high school who always suspected that one of his uncles worked in the CIA because he would just, like, go on these trips and no one really knew. And he would just tell his wife, like, yeah, I got to go out of town for work. And it was always kind of sus and there were other things. But she never knew. Or if she did, she kept it a secret from everybody. You can't, I mean, when I saw the Navy SEAL, one of the Navy SEALs that killed Osama bin Laden speak... We that was one of the questions he did. Like he wrote a book and then he did a speech. And then at the end, people asked and they said, well, when you went, did you tell your wife where you were going? And he said, no, I'm not allowed to. I just said, I have a a mission. I'll be gone 24 hours. He's like, now when I came home and the president had come on television and been like, Osama bin Laden got killed. And she was like, how was your trip? He was like, I'm pretty tired. (laughs) She's like, yeah, I bet you are. And so you can't, you know, she can assume, but he's never told her. Yeah, you put two and two together, but you can't just be like, it was fucking crazy. But I guess now she can read his book now that he's out. Yeah, now, over. but that's such a hard dynamic of a relationship. I could never be like, where, where were you? What would you do? Were you? Did you like, did you see Osama? What was going on? Like, were you involved <laughs> with that? I would have to know all of the details. Like, babe, dish. Now <laughs> I'm your wife. Tell me everything. But they can't, and no. they shouldn't. I mean, that's part of the oath, I guess, the whatever Mm-mm. you take when you become no. a officer there. You swear to secrets you're mm-hmm. never, ever going to tell. In 1974, Drew started law school while still working as a narcotics officer. Classmates said he drove his police squad car to school, allowed his service weapon to be visible during class, and bragged to his fellow students about the high levels of police work. He was engaged in, according to the bluegrass, according to the bluegrass conspiracy. And this shows just the disregard that Drew and his fellow officers had 
for the sanctity of their role as law enforcement because they would just he, he just used this to for cachet to make himself look better. His colleague, um, Henry Vance, who we'll talk about later, was like selling. He was stealing guns from the department, forging signatures. And it was real loose. Oh, Everybody it was, was real loose. Well, this was like the early push against like, oh, this is the war on drugs. They It was the very early days of having a narcotics task force. They were the very first ones. So nobody knew how to run it. Your job was like, bust as many people as possible. And it's like, what are our rules? And they were like, we haven't written them. So let us know. They're like, and- okay, so then it's it's okay if we steal the drugs and sell them for ourselves. Well, there's not a rule book. So I guess do it and we'll see how it goes. And then maybe we'll make a rule about it later. You're like, fuck it. Just do it. <laughs> It's also the most cringe flex to drive your police squad car to class and just have your weapon out. Ugh. Ugh. You know, you know he was a gunner too. Like the kid in the front that would be like, um, actually, and then oh, he would yeah. be wrong because he didn't study. He didn't like to study. No, he wasn't class. good at academics, but he sure wanted to be the top dog in everything he did. Well, I'm sure if the grades come out and they post them, he's like, well, I would have got an A, but I was doing a major heist (laughs) for the CIA, so. I'd been up all night on a sting operation, so, you know, I didn't have time to study. (laughs) Kentucky State Police Investigator Ralph Ross became suspicious of the Lexington Police Department's narcotics unit, as it had a high rate of arrest, but very few convictions. At one point, a large amount of marijuana went missing from the Lexington PD's evidence room. It was later found on Drew's property, still marked with the evidence tags. Drew was not reprimanded for this incident. Neither were he or his fellow officers reprimanded for their brutal and violent conduct with suspects, including one incident where Drew performed karate on a dog. Another record scratch moment in this book, The Bluegrass Conspiracy. Highly recommend if you want to I told you I was reading this and by myself in the studio, I just go, God! And yeah. everyone from the living room was like, what happened? I'm like, my who does it? I mean, well, this is the least harmful thing this guy does to an animal, which is saying something. Yeah. He was very into martial arts. And I don't think that at any point in martial arts is it karate chop a dog. That's not part of it. And yeah. knowing how he treated suspects, planting evidence roughing up suspects they said they had this weird because the media at the time was very much like crime fighter and not serving and protecting and solving cases it was like dirty harry charles bronson i'm gonna go out i'm gonna punish people that it was a lot of skull cracking so yeah if you come across an innocent dog i'm sure you're like fuck you fido and then karate chop it and you're like fuck you drew thornton don't karate chop a dog (laughs) unless that dog is attacking you or one of your fellow officers Yeah, I don't know why you would need to karate chop it. No, and they always failed upward. Like, this guy literally stole weed. It was marked as evidence, and they're like, well, just put it back. And his buddy, when he was jacking with those revolvers, his friend was forging signatures, he got fired and then just got hired as a state legislator aide. Like, he went to the Capitol. He literally failed upward. It's the South. Yes. Anything goes. You call in a favor. Mm. Sinisterhood will be right back. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? 
Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. According to the Bluegrass Conspiracy, during his time as a police officer, Drew told a state trooper he was planning on leaving the police department to use his drug connections and become a dealer. He then handed the trooper a chunk of hash in a brazen act of defiance. The Lexington Police Department was known in those days to bend to the whims of the rich and powerful. With the right phone call or reference from a powerful figure, investigations would cease or case files would be lost. In 1977, Drew graduated law school and began practicing law at a small firm. However, his main source of income was the illegal activities he was engaging in with his friend from the military academy, Bradley Bryant. For a time, Drew ran a yearling operation on a spread of beautiful land in central Kentucky. There, he bought and sold young racehorses. However, authorities long suspected it was a front for illegal operations. The inside of the home was built with secret windowless rooms behind hidden doors and is surrounded by several acres of tree cover. The property was adjacent to the river, making it ideal for watery getaways to other nearby docks. It was also along the notorious I-75 corridor, which ran rampant with drugs from Detroit to Tampa. Drew, Bradley, and Henry Vance, a charismatic, pedigreed law school dropout who also served on the Lexington Narcotics Unit, called this area the Triad. Though it was secluded, Drew used the location to host lavish parties, which he called boogies. FBI documents show that the boogies were gatherings where Drew would share plentiful amounts of cocaine he had obtained via his connections to a notorious drug cartel with many so-called uh, groupies. And they were figuring out all different ways to get a hold of it because Bradley went off to Philly and started making connections with business owners, kingpins. He then started going to Vegas and gambling and then meeting people there. And it's like, well, where'd you get all this money from? And they're like, well, we sell, we steal guns and then sell them. And then we buy drugs or we trade them. And then he's figuring out, oh, I can make, I can make more money than I ever would as a businessman if I'm a kingpin. And then you go and tell your buddy, hey, you know, you got those suppliers. I got the distributors. We could get in this. I couldn't hate more that he called these parties boogies yeah he's gross he's the worst it's just so <laughs> come on down to a boogie <laughs> the boogies the showing your weapon in class just he his whole vibe just ma- gives me the heebie-jeebies I feel guilty because the people that were his friends that have been interviewed now are that are like, he was awesome. He was so neat. Then reading about him, I'm like, oh, honey, no, he wasn't. No, well, he was and a it's dork with a lot of guns. They may not have known what all he was doing, you know? So it's a hard thing to reconcile when you learn that somebody you thought you knew and were close to was actually a huge criminal 
and was doing all sorts of unsavory stuff. Oh, yeah. I mean, even all the crime aside, the cringe is rough. The, the cringe is so bad. Come on now. He all, drove almost his... arguably worse than the crime. <laughs> it's up there. A lot of people were doing crime that bad. I don't know many other people that were this cringy. <laughs> cringe and crime. If he... But he thought he was like the cool ninja badass oh. with superpowers. <laughs> that makes it worse. It's more cringy. I've been watching a lot of TikToks where girls talk about what gives them the ick. There it is. This... It, first of all, if you show up to school with a weapon, especially today, okay. well, that's not just ick. That's like you need to go away. Yeah. But back then, like driving your police squad car, I would get the ick so fast. And then anybody that thought they were a ninja, I'm not I'm not going to mess around with. No. And then they had a ninja with superpowers. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. No. Good for you, Betty. <laughs> she got away. <laughs> I hope she was happy. I hope she lived the rest of her life just reading the newspaper going, well, I'll be damned. I didn't see that coming. I guess I didn't have stacking powers. there, didn't I? The men used this land to train upwards of 100 members of their private security force. They also began running drugs in an organization they called The Company. At first, they ran drugs for those who had already imported them into the U.S. Then, Drew got greedy and wanted to cut out the middleman. The men then made connections with South Americans who were manufacturing the cocaine themselves. Yeah, they had a seemingly legitimate front. They called it executive protection. And they said that they would provide protection for any high rolling or important figures that might need protection. But they weren't doing a ton of business. But yet they were outfitted like they had a million clients. Like they had, Mm -hmm. it was literally like, the terrorism training camp. They had people rappelling off of these cliff sides while someone was like shooting rubber bullets at them, basically training them how to escape high level, a high adrenaline situations, which you know Drew just loves. Oh, like, go, yeah. go, go. There was probably not a huge need. They were overtrained, which is always better to be overprepared than underprepared. But I think this was also his personal playground to act mm-hmm. out these fantasies that he's had since a kid yeah and they all liked money but i think they did all the three of them figured out like bradley was a business guy coming from his grandpa was the mayor i think you know coming from this more white collar background so bradley was like business contacts organization personnel and then drew was he liked this backyard cowboy ninja thing and so he was all like airplanes parachuting training people guns and then henry was like i'm at the capitol so i gotta pass some laws (laughs) i'll let you know if anybody's looking into you so you got a buddy Mm -hmm. on the inside one of many a little bit country a little bit rock and roll heather that's right (laughs) that's what makes the company that's what does Once the operation was functional, it ran like a corporation. Bradley insisted that there be firewalls between groups so that no one could be questioned about other aspects of the operation, even if they were caught. New applicants to the company were given a lie detector test to ensure they were loyal and not working undercover. However, many of them did have second jobs as members of the Lexington Police Department, a trait which the company preferred as it meant close connections and heads up on any pending investigations. And this is where it gets really sad, because this was around 1977 when one of the guys that worked with the company was also a police officer named Bill Kanan. His girlfriend, which was significantly younger than him, 24-year-old Melanie Flynn, went missing one day. Mm -hmm. She left work, went to go see her family, 
No one ever heard from her again. And Sally Denton, who wrote the Bluegrass Conspiracy, said, you know, obviously at the time, she's a 24-year-old girl. She had no reason to leave home. But she was at these boogies. And she, Bill and Henry and Drew were very close because they were on the unit together. So she was in a lot of conversations Mm -hmm. and she overheard a lot. And if anything was going to go sideways with their relationship, you know, if she was going to break up with him, they wanted to make sure she was going to stay silent. And the consensus is that likely if he was not the actual perpetrator, that Drew either strangled her or was present when she was killed and then they disposed of her body off the this land the triad which still hasn't been found her but yeah they they believe that she was thrown into the kentucky river and that her remains have never been found a psychic in around this time came forward and said she was having all these dreams and in every single dream melanie was wet in water her hair was floating like it was in water and this psychic for you know, for what everybody believes about psychics, was able to say some things that weren't public. And so it didn't, it still didn't lead him anywhere because she's like, she's in the water. Well, and I think just even in the past few years, some older adults have come forward and said, I got some information. And both of them mentioned like a septic tank or or septic Mm -hmm. area. And the police went and dug where they said, but there's been so much things that have changed since back then that they're now asking for people that have photographs of that area from back then to send them in so they can see, okay, well, this actually was land and now it has a building over it, but like something could be under there, which kind of like, um, oh, not Bryceless Pisa, who was the man that went missing from the- uh, The Tuna Saluna. Yeah. Yeah. Brian Schaefer. Yeah. So- I mean, landscape changes over the years and True. what where some someone may have been buried at one point is just like not accessible now. That's true. And you've seen we've seen pictures of, you know, what your city looked like 50 years mm-hmm. ago. And it's super sad for her family who you think, OK, well, she was dating a police officer. So surely they'll investigate this. Nope. Whenever he was questioned, Bill's like, oh, we we didn't really hang out that often. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, her parents are like, well, she said you guys were super close and might get married. So interesting difference of opinion very suddenly. And she was also there's some connections to if you really want to get in the nitty gritty of Kentucky organized crime the bluegrass conspiracy is a great book and it goes into great detail about other people who the same thing happened when questioned were like i don't really know her oh i mean if it comes down to you can either say something or stay quiet and stay alive most people are going to choose the latter Mm -hmm. as the men made more money they needed ways to deposit it legitimately They utilized connections between the underworld of Kentucky horse gambling and legitimate casino gambling in Las Vegas. The men would launder their drug funds through Caesar's Palace, making the cash appear to be casino winnings. Then, Drew would take attache cases full of cash around to Lexington Banks in quantities of exactly $9,999, one dollar below the federal mandatory reporting threshold. Bank tellers got to know him for his repeat appearances and exact deposit amounts. I feel like he liked being recognized. I also feel like if you notice that he's always depositing this at $1 under the mandatory federal reporting threshold, that seems a little sus and maybe you say something. 
Right. And then do you go, uh, manager, I have a question about this. And they're like, why don't you leave your Thornton alone? And you're yeah. Like, oh, okay. So we're a friendly bank. To, we're yes. friendly to the drug dealers. Like, what'd you say? When it comes to staying safe and shutting your mouth or saying something, mm-hmm. you're like, okay, I'll deposit that. Here's your receipt. Bye-bye. Though the men were making more money than ever, it was still not enough. Bradley Bryant became involved with a defense attorney out of El Paso who was running a similar operation. Lee Chagra and his brothers were powerful allies at first, until they became the subject of a federal investigation. This scared Drew, but Bradley insisted they continue working with the Texan gang, running guns and drugs across the border. But when John Wood, the federal judge poised to put Chagra's brother away for life, was shot to death outside his home, suddenly the heat was turned up on the company's southern colleagues. This is a classic case of two best friends. And then one of the best friends is like, I want to have some new friends. And Drew's <laughs> like, we don't need new friends. The Chagras are bad for you. They're going to drag you down. And Bradley's like, Lee and his brother are cool. Okay, leave me alone. Jimmy and Lee are cool guys. Yeah. They were not cool guys. They murdered a federal judge. Too many cooks in the kitchen. Oh, yeah. You cannot. Yeah, they, the Chagras. So Lee was the lawyer. Jimmy was this like high roller gambler guy in Late 1978, they were the Chagras were under investigation. They went ahead in November of 1978. They took a hit out on the prosecutor in this case. Somehow he lived. He was shot yeah, he was multiple shot times and still lived in his car, and he he made it out. But then, well, then Lee Chagra. So Jimmy was really under investigation. The high roller gambler. The lawyer was shot to death. The lawyer brother was shot to death in his office, December of seventy eight. And then it's just like one after the other mm-hmm. in this. Everybody connected to this case, culminating with the federal judge being killed, which was such a huge deal. And I think it was the first time in a hundred years that a federal judge had been assassinated. Mm. A contract killer named Charles Harrelson father of actor Woody Harrelson, had pulled the trigger, though at the time he remained unknown and on the run. While federal authorities scrambled to find him and solve what the FBI called the case of the century, they placed more scrutiny on the Chagra brothers' illegal operations, meaning more eyes on Drew, Bradley, and the company. We've had a lot of people request us to cover the case of Charles Harrelson because it is Kind of this known thing, but not a really talked about thing that Woody Harrelson's dad was a contract killer. (laughs) Right. It's a small world. It's a strange world. You see that last name and then go, oh, no, it is the same one. It's the same Harrelson. Yeah. But this is a good example of making a better name for yourself than the family that you came from. Your dad was a contract killer and then you made Zombieland. Good job. (laughs) Yes. Was it Zombieland? Is that what I'm what am I thinking of? Well, I've told you how there's Zombieland and then it's Adventureland. No. Those are two different ones. It is called Zombieland. I'm not crazy. Okay, but what's the other one? Is Zombieland with... Who's the Facebook guy? Facebook guy is in Adventureland. It's a melancholy... It says Adventureland is a 2009 melancholy voyage into the gray zone between adolescence and adulthood, school and career, lust and relationships, and frivolity. And then, and zombie. the cast of that is what? Um, Adventureland. It's Woody Harrelson is in that one, correct? Not from uh, what I can tell. Okay, then it, he's in Zombieland. He's in Zombieland. But so, so is Facebook guy. Facebook's in both. His okay. name's Jesse Eisenberg. That's first of all. that's why when I watched Adventureland, I thought until about 
20 minutes from the end that I was watching Zombieland. And I kept wondering why the zombies hadn't made an appearance yet. And I kept thinking, oh, there's going to be like a huge twist at the end. And Woody Harrelson's going to come out and there's going to be this whole zombie thing at this theme park. Never happened. That was one of Tommy and I's first movies to watch together. Thank you, babe, for sticking with me after that ridiculous mistake. After you were so disappointed that you're like, there have been no zombies in this. This is a melancholy voyage into the gray zone between adulthood and What is this, 500 days of summer? This isn't a zombie movie. (laughs) Fucking 500 days of roller coaster. Well, Zombieland is also Jesse Eisenberg. We call him Facebook, which was funny. I just read, uh, I think someone posted it from People Magazine that he says he ri- he lives in New York City and rides his bicycle around a lot and that there's a kid in the street that calls him Napoleon Dynamite every day. <laughs> and he's like, every day, I'm like, I'm not Napoleon Dynamite. My name's Jesse. And the kid's like, all right, Napoleon Dynamite. See <laughs> Whatever you, you say, Napoleon Dynamite. So I was like, kids are the fucking best, man. <laughs> Well, and then you have two grown women that are like, isn't Facebook guy in the yeah. Jesse Eisenberg? He's just trying to make a name for himself. He Live said- like a low key life in the city. Yeah, he said that I get called Napoleon Dynamite every time I pass him. He screams it out and his friends laugh. That was a fine movie, but I wasn't in it. And the reporter said, well, what do you say back? And Jesse said, I say, please, Abraham, I am not that man. <laughs> So they know each other. <laughs> yeah, I like it. It's like a neighborhood. Yeah. I think Abraham's probably in on the bit at this point. Oh, but yeah. It's a good a, bit. Man, I want to hear the story from Abraham's perspective of how this all came to be and like, Abraham's friends. Abraham's like, we're just trying to play basketball and Napoleon Dynamite's trying to gaslight <laughs> me every day. Every day I say hi and every day he's like, no, and I'm like, okay, well, okay, I've seen a picture. Well, whatever. When Drew put his foot down to have the company sever ties, Bradley refused. The men parted ways, with Drew keeping the triad and Bradley telling all remaining members of the company that Drew was now persona non grata. However, some authorities believe the alleged split may have been a smokescreen to avoid further investigation by law enforcement. Which would be pretty smart if you're if you think that the cops are closing in, you're like, well, we'll pretend that we're fighting and then they'll mm-hmm. half of them will chase you and half of them will chase me. I think it was legit. I think that there was a lot of ego involved and Drew was like, we had a good thing going and you fucked it up with these Texans. Yeah. It's a very TMZ possible move where you're like, <laughs> well, they're already saying that we broke up. So we may as well just say we are to give them some news. And then maybe we can go away to Hawaii. We'll get some private time mm-hmm. and no one will know. There were also rumors that Drew, Bradley, and other drug runners were running something more, secrets and weapons for the U.S. government. When the CIA needed to obtain an item from an unfriendly place, it would often contract with third parties like the company to fly down and collect the target. In one instance, the Libyans had a piece of military equipment they had obtained from Russia. Still in the Cold War, the U.S. government was desperate to reverse engineer the Soviet technology. Smugglers like the company were allowed to fly into foreign nations, retrieve the requested technology, and if their planes had any other room, fill them to the brim with illegal guns and drugs. All while the U.S. government looked the other way. And that is some of the arguments that people have when you talk about, we've had requests to do like the Iran contract scandal and things where the CIA is paying these smugglers to run this operation for them. And then the smugglers use the money to buy drugs on the trip 
which they keep in the same airplane that they're keeping the CIA's load, land, give the CIA what they want. Nobody's searching the plane because I'm here on official business, so you don't Mm -hmm. need a warrant to search me. And then those drugs all end up in the street. And then you have local police officers and DEA trying to fight this when it's the people above your head are actually the reason why it's out there. It's such a clusterfuck. Huge, huge. Definition of a clusterfuck. Yes, When Ralph Ross of the Kentucky State Police began suspecting that something was going on down at Drew's Ranch, the triad, he began investigating. Neighbors had reported that small aircraft would fly overhead and drop duffel bags onto the property. Ross sent officers down to the property in cars and on foot, but they were met with signs reading, Trespassing on this property may be hazardous to your health. When Ross sent a plane overhead to take aerial photos, he received a call from a sergeant at the Lexington Police Department, telling him there was a message from the property owners. If the state police fly over again, their planes will be shot down. And you're with the state police and you're like, I'm sorry, you're what? Yeah, it's (laughs) so confusing. And I wonder if you're kind of like, oh, okay, this there's something shady going on that I'm not supposed to know about. So I'm just going to, you know, back up from this one. Or if you're genuinely just so baffled as to why why this would be. He kind of knew because he knew that Drew had worked for Lexington PD. And the triad was not in the, the ranch or the farm area. The big plot of land wasn't in the jurisdiction of the Lexington police. So that's why Ralph Ross was like, why is Lexington police calling me? And he's like, oh, this isn't a jurisdictional thing that the police are calling me officially. This is their buddy, Drew, called the sergeant and said, hey, why don't you tell your state buddy to get the fuck off of my land? Mm -hmm. And kind of like professional to professional, you might not want to fuck with what's going on at that farm over there. And Ralph Ross was like, well, I'm going to keep fucking with stuff. I mean, he was obsessed with it. And that's he throughout the bluegrass conspiracy is kind of the protagonist to Drew's antagonist that Ralph was a good guy, wanted to do what was right and frustrated at every turn by good old boy networks protecting wealthy people who his mission was to get drugs off the street, clean up crime. And he was just being told, okay, but not them because they're friends of ours. Like go find some crime somewhere else. It's like you work in retail and they're like, can you go fold all of those shirts before you leave? You're like, sure. And then you're folding them and then they your boss just comes over and <laughs> rips every shirt down that you've done. It's like, all right, well, and like I said, you're going to have to fold all these before you leave. You're like, I just did. Yeah, well, you're going to have to keep doing it. Yeah. Oopsie. It's just pointless. Yeah, you're like you're spinning right. your wheels. Oh, a hamster on a wheel for sure. And he would it started to go up and up and up until. So this is where the kernel comes in is. So the colonel created his original recipe and then a rich guy in Kentucky convinced him to franchise it and kind of that's a whole other interesting story sort of stole the KFC name from him gave for very little money the colonel was really kind of sad with the deal he made but when it went public this guy made a ton of dough became the governor of Kentucky but still had these kind of toes in organized crime, you know, owning this resort in Florida where a bunch of mafia guys would always meet or having friends that had Drew Thornton-esque ties. Well, the Kentucky State Police, they put this new head in who was from the FBI, who was a governmental corruption guy put in charge of the Kentucky State Police. So at this point, Ralph Ross starts to get a little bit better support from his higher ups, although still some like, well, don't totally rock the boat, but Keep doing what you're doing. Yeah. 
it's a hard thing, I think, even if you get to the point where you're like, I, I want to be on the straight and narrow. It's a, uh, you've been involved in so long, one, it's hard to give up that kind of money and power, but also you might not be allowed to get out. No, no, yeah. And you'll, you end up like not just Melanie Flynn, but there was some other women and other close associates that disappeared. Yeah. Sinisterhood will be right back. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Federal agents took notice as well, but Drew had a powerful friend an agent at the DEA, who managed to keep most of the heat off of him. But as the breadth of his now-fractured enterprise continued to grow, the federal government's various arms began working together. What had previously been U.S. attorneys' offices in various states investigating separately now became a nationwide task force. And the person in charge of the DEA over Kentucky was the guy that was buddies with Drew, and he could do all he wanted to do, but then all of a sudden when you have the U.S. attorney from Texas calling in, there was a robbery of a naval base that they were all involved in in California calling in. Then there's more pressure, and it's not just Harold Brown of the DEA being able to quash investigations. It becomes, like you said, in this case, it's a good thing. It's too many cooks. It's too many eyes on it, mm-hmm. and it was getting close for Drew mm-hmm. and, and Bradley, too. In 1979, Drew was indicted as part of a larger conspiracy for piloting a DC-4 loaded with tons of marijuana into the Lexington airport. Drew was on the run for several months before being arrested in North Carolina in 1980. At the time of his arrest, Drew was carrying a 22 caliber pistol, nunchucks, and a printed card in his shirt pocket that contained his personal philosophy, according to the Bluegrass Conspiracy. It read, If a warrior is not unattached to life and death, he will be of no use whatsoever. The saying that all abilities come from one mind sounds as though it has to do with sentient matters, but it is, in fact, a matter of being unattached to life and death. With such non-attachment, one can accomplish any feat. Martial arts and the like are related to this insofar as they can lead to the way. Okay, well, I some of this I think we would agree with. Yeah. But to carry it around with some nunchucks in your pocket, along with all the other stuff we know, this just adds to the ick factor so much more. And I think it's a lot of it is the misinterpretation of the, the philosophies that he got along with his martial arts training in some ways of, well, if I do this, then I will have superpowers. And yeah. It's like, That's not what it says. No, yeah. No. A lot of it was delusional. Oh, yeah. Just a very wishful thinking. Mm-mm. No, and it's like, come on, man. You're not you're not a magical superpower ninja. You're an idiot who got a couple of books and decided that you were special. This is also when, so he, it's kind of another big bust happened. Bradley got arrested in Philly, somehow got off, shockingly, even though he had a warehouse full of guns. But as part of, they had stolen these military items from California that were in that warehouse. And it all, everybody got tied together in one big conspiracy. And Drew was on the run. He he heard he was indicted and was like, I'm not going down for this. For like almost two years, like 18 months, he was on the run. 
And in the middle of that, what could stop you from going to trial? If you death? got shot? If you faked your own if death? If you Alec Murdocked yourself? <laughs> and that's what he did. It was like February 27th, 1982. He was about to go into a hearing in Fresno. He was at this restaurant in Lexington called the Merrick Inn, which was the hub around these posh apartments. And he always sat in the same seat and he loved his same seat. And it's like you at the company cafe. <laughs> that's right. It is. <laughs> if I was ever going to fake an assassination attempt, that's where it would be. Well, he walked outside kind of like down this weird alleyway and somebody popped out and shot him in the chest twice with a 38 caliber gun, but he was wearing a bulletproof vest because he always did. But also the type of bullets wouldn't cut. And it was known that he always wore a bulletproof vest. So the type of bullets didn't cut through it. So it, the judge was almost immediately like, well, I feel like that was your friend, so right? I don't care. Yeah. And now you're just in a lot of pain because even with a bulletproof vest, those bitches hurt. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Right? Especially if it's point blank range. I mean, it would bruise your oh, chest yeah. plate for sure. But yeah, you, you think, oh, well, then they'll think I've, someone came for me. And it's like, no, it's very flimsy. Again, this cringy factor of like, you thought that was going to work? Yeah. Of your think you're a lot smarter and savvier than you really are when i think maybe even if he didn't think oh well i'm not i'm gonna get convicted but he thought oh well i have to tell him i need special accommodations right. and protections because i'm my private license. room you're you know you need to be protected from yourself yeah it's embarrassing yeah oh he's very embarrassing <laughs> in many ways mm-hmm. and then yeah right up till the end you're like you fool but it's also sad uh-huh. because i mean you know he roughed up people as a cop and everything but we haven't heard that he like abused his wife or anybody else or anything like that his friends are like he's a great guy he's he's eccentric and you know stuff i mean most of his stuff was a revolved around just you know like shady police stuff drugs and guns it's Sad that I think all of this kind of started in his childhood of feeling like a loner, you know, being taken from his grandmother's house, failing his dad, wanting to try and impress him. And then when you think like, oh, I found this like daredevil lifestyle that I really like. Well, what do you do if that's what you want to do as your like career? I mean, this is, you know, I mean, right now you'd be like, oh, I'm going to make a TikTok and I'm a daredevil and I'm going to have a gazillion followers. That wasn't the life back then. So he kind of went this roundabout way. And it. I feel secondhand embarrassment, but also sorry for him. Oh, yeah. And wondering what hole were you trying to fill in your yeah. soul which with everything, mm-hmm. guns, gadgets, philosophies, women, planes. There's Drugs. A, yeah, drugs. A happy person doesn't pursue a life like no, this. No, Drew pled no contest and spent six months in jail before being released with a suspended law license. Ralph Ross of the Kentucky State Police continued his investigation and was convinced that the DEA was protecting Drew. For the next two years, Drew ran an even bigger operation than he had before. Now, free from the company and his former partners, Drew called all the shots and ran large amounts of cocaine, marijuana, and weapons in from South America and the southern United States. Drew believed he had supernatural powers, according to the Bluegrass Conspiracy, 
and also believed he had been chosen by a higher authority to use those powers for whatever he wanted. And I think in this case, what he wanted, Sally Denton said several of his associates mentioned round mid to late 1985. He's like, I think I'm getting a little tired of this. I want to have, I want to be able to do whatever I want and not have to look over my shoulder. Because even though the heat was a little bit dissipated, it wasn't at the height of we're trying to, it was still the war on drugs, but it wasn't like the same as when the Chagras were under investigation Mm -hmm. and they were part of all that. I think you're getting kind of long in the tooth eventually. You're not a spring chicken anymore. Yeah. It's harder to do all of this stuff. I mean, we've all seen Blow with Johnny Depp. It starts off young. You're doing coke. You're getting all the women. Eventually, you're just an old, sad man that is pretty much alone in your life. Yeah, you're the the old one at the party. Someone said they saw, it was a meme that said, I saw a 43-year-old at spring break in Miami you're not on spring break, Brad. You're on sick leave. <laughs> you're on PTO. <laughs> yeah, you're on PTO. That's, that's spring break. You know, sometimes it's cool. You know what? You just need to make a cool exit of like, have, hey, it's been fun. I'll see you guys later yeah. and not hang around too long. No. Yeah. I think I, um, for a long time in improv, you know, you're friends with people that are much younger than you or much older than you. So it's not weird if you're all at a party and there's, It ranges from like 20 to 60 years old or whatever. Right. Now, if I showed up to a 20-year-old's party, that doesn't look good. That's probably a little bit weird. Oh, yeah. I'm here to rage with people of all ages. If you want to... I'm not I'm not here to rage. I'm never going to rage. But I'm here to chill and talk and <laughs> I will chill with anybody of any age. Oh, I'll chill with anybody. But yeah, if we're talking like loud music and red solo cups, oh, no, thank you. I'd have rather have a root canal. I couldn't. <laughs> I can't take it. A bunch of strangers, it makes me sick <laughs> to my stomach. I can... Uh, I would do it for nostalgia purposes. Oh, I'm nice. not going to make a regular habit of it. But if all of a sudden somebody's like, there's a raging college party. Y'all in? I'd be like, fuck yeah, let's go to campus. Let's do it for a night. I'm doing it. Well, with the caveat that you'll go, then I would go because you're the cool kid that went to cool kid parties. (laughs) I was the dork kid that was like, should we tell an adult that this is going on? And I never got to experience cool kid parties. So now I'm going to go and I get to be like, I'm with Christy Wallace, guys. Well, we'll go to the cool kids parties. We're not kids, though. That's you know what thing. I mean. I mean, we like, could be their parents, like the cool kid, and in, in the not that I'm my age as a child, but like the term of like, oh, those are the cool ones. I'm cooler now than I was as a teen. It, well, yeah, I feel like when you start as cool as you did, it, you're gonna <laughs> your cool you factors a, exponential. I think you misinterpret how cool no, I was I don't. in high school. Not at all. No, I don't. <laughs> Hanging out at the pipe? Are you fucking kidding me? <laughs> okay, this is the PSA. If help any of you. Know of the pipe in Fort Worth. Help. If any of you hung out with me at the pipe in Fort Worth, I am desperately trying to remember where it was because I want to take Heather there. I have looked at Google Maps. I have tried Googling whatever I can. Did I go there like weekly for four years? Yeah, I did. But I'm not good with directions. and I don't remember how to get there. So I need someone to help. If you know what I'm talking about, send us an email, please. Approximately what year did you hang out at the pipe? Oh, gosh. Um, 1995 to 1997. Okay, so late 90s, and it would have been what region of Fort Worth? Like a north, south, east, west? <laughs> I don't know directions. <laughs> <laughs> Was it near your high school? 
it wasn't far. It was kind of, I would say it was more in like, um, well, it's a, it was part of like a nature preserve type of area where there were like trails to go running and hiking and stuff. So it was part of a big like wildlife nature mm-hmm. preserve area. But this pipe was integral to the city in, in some capacity because it was freaking huge and like spanned an entire field. It's so, still there. Yeah, it's got to still be there, I would imagine. If you or someone you know works for the Fort Worth Parks and Recreation <laughs> Department, ask them, what is the hiking trail area with the pipe? Because I got to go. I got to go see it. We got it. I want to go back. I yep. got to. I mean, it's probably looks going way different, you. but I got to go back. I would never go without you. Are you kidding me? They wouldn't <laughs> let me into the pipe. <laughs> well, anybody can go because it's like I said, it's a nature preserve. Anybody's welcome. <laughs> the land is owned by the city. So. Yeah. But if you know what I'm talking about. Please send me a DM or probably an email because I never check my DMs. So an yeah, email to the show would be best. Yes, please. Well, so Drew was out. He's he's searching for his final party, the final ride. The and final thought, countdown. I got this. I'm great. The bad news is, so it's like 1985. The bad news is he thinks he's not on anyone's radar, but someone called a tip in on him. Isn't it always, we're going to have one last hurrah and then mail it in? Same with Johnny Depp and Blow. Two stories are pretty parallel, except Johnny Depp didn't jump out of a plane. Well, but yeah, you you think, okay, it's like greedy. That's what they say with the stock market. Pigs get fat and hogs get slaughtered. Mm -hmm. Like if you you get too greedy and he just, if he wouldn't have done this one last run, knowing, not knowing that the FBI was already looking for him, I think he would have, he wouldn't have ended this way. On the night of September 10th, 1985, Drew took off in a Cessna 404 Titan with Bill Leonard, a friend and bodybuilder employed at the Lexington Athletic Club. Bill explained to the Knoxville News Sentinel why he agreed to go that night, telling reporters Drew had tricked him. Well, he said, well, I'm going over to the Bahamas to meet a couple guys to talk about some things and I need somebody to watch my back. I'll pay you. Drew then said a friend of his from Columbia would be accompanying them on the flight. Okay. I I I understand Bill is like, I didn't know what was going on. If you have someone come to you and say something so vague, like, I'm taking my private plane to the Bahamas to talk to some guys. Oh, by the way, my associate from Columbia will also be there. I don't think it takes a rocket scientist to put two and two together. You know, if you're, uh, are you willfully ignorant or were you just going... I don't want to know. I'm going to put my head in the sand and whatever happens, happens. I will say if you get onto this is uh, you can't stand up in this plane. I'll say that a Cessna 404 Titan. It's twin engine, Mm -hmm. but it's not uh, you can't unless you're like less than five feet. It's not that much headroom. And if you notice that a plane that small has giant ass tanks added to it to Mm -hmm. make it fly for much, much longer than Lexington to the Bahamas and maybe then the plane starts banking a different direction. At what point are you like, are we going to another continent? <laughs> right? Yeah. When, at some point, you're no longer just um, an innocent bystander. You're complicit. Yeah, you didn't make just an oopsie. No. <laughs> what was that guy that thought he was going to Sydney, Australia, but he went to Sydney, Minnesota? What? <laughs> yeah, somebody <laughs> I've never him. heard of that. It was eh, maybe in the last few months, somebody on the news said this man thought he was going to Sydney, oh, Australia. What a disappointment. Uh, no offense to anyone living in what I imagine is the beautiful city of Sydney, Minnesota, but it's quite different from Sydney, Australia. 
Yeah, again, what continent are we on? I don't think I signed up for this. I didn't think there was this much snow in Australia. <laughs> they should clarify what continent you're going to. <laughs> oh, you're going to Paris for your honeymoon? Let us know how it was when you get back. Well, we didn't see many French people, and there wasn't really an Eiffel Tower, but sure there was a hell. Bucky's along the way. <laughs> um, Were you in Paris, Texas? Yes. <laughs> That's why the tiny-ass Eiffel Tower had a hat on it. <laughs> I'll be goddamned. They got to stop naming, duplicating city names. It's too confusing. Oh, we've got a lot of them here. Mm-hmm. When the three men eventually landed, it was not the Bahamas, but an area in Colombia that Bill didn't recognize. In seconds, they were surrounded by men brandishing machine guns. Bill watched as they refueled the plane and loaded duffel bags on board. The passenger who rode down with them stayed behind, while Drew and Bill took off back toward Lexington. Drew had planned on dropping bags of cocaine at certain previously agreed-upon locations along the flight path back home. Later, his associates would follow up in cars and pick up the duffel bags. However, soon, the plan would veer off course. Once the plane crossed the border out of Florida, jets began tailing them. According to FBI records, Drew believed he was being followed and tracked by government aircraft. Bill told reporters that when the jets appeared, Drew announced the men would be parachuting out of the plane. Bill, who had never been skydiving before, immediately begun to panic. Yeah, the guy piloting the plane tells you, it's on autopilot, I'm jumping. So well, you either have to land a plane or jump. What do you choose? <laughs> oh, um, My very first instinct is, I've landed a plane before, but I've only landed a plane with my friend Tim, who is an expert pilot and flight instructor next to me. So I would say jump. I'm going to jump too. I think I have a better chance of controlling what's going on with a parachute than trying to land a plane. Because I know, well, I don't know anything about jumping out of a plane or landing a plane, but I feel like you need more skill to land a plane than jump out of one. Yeah, my... If it was 2023 and I was faced with this, I would pick fly plane and then you can get apps on your phone if you could get down <laughs> low true. enough to get service and you can get, I don't know, they're really more for iPads, but even if I could get on the radio and just say what's happening and they can walk you through it and explain to you, especially if you say I'm in this type of aircraft, most of the time they can grab somebody that's a flight instructor and they know what that looks like. So they can literally be like six inches to your right is a blank. So everything's pretty uniform. So they could help me. But if I was like on a drug smuggling, I would bail. I'd bail out. I think <laughs> I'd bail right too. Thing. As <laughs> long as I was told beforehand, this is what you do to get yes. your parachute to open. Good yeah. luck. Do you think Drew was like, okay, we're going to do a really quick orientation to your very first skydive <laughs> step one he was like grab it i don't know just put it on and i think like, he was oh, probably like you grab it you put it on you pull this good luck yank bye. the thing godspeed bye mm -hmm. my thing is like if you've never gone skydiving you don't know where to to pull it like what no. the, unless yeah. he tells you okay count to 10 and then pull it and you're like count like 10 mississippi or like <laughs> one two three four five do i go on 10 or is it 10 <laughs> and then go fuck i have never been skydiving and that's a good point i wouldn't know at what level to do anything, but I would probably err on the side of caution and pull it sooner rather than later. And I mm. don't know if that also causes issues, but I'd rather be just drifting around in the sky for a while than plummeting to the ground and oopsie, I pulled it too late. I believe you want to be, you want to do it at the perfect time, but you want to err on the side of higher versus lower. Okay. 
That, well, I'm, then I'm in good shape because that's what my gut would tell me. <laughs> yeah. You got you got it right. We're not trying to plummet. Sinisterhood will be right back. Cruising at 7,000 feet, Drew put the plane on autopilot and began dumping things out of it. The copious amounts of cocaine was too much for the small twin-engine plane to bear, forcing Drew to dump 200 pounds of the powder over Georgia to lighten the load. The drugs, which had been thrown out in duffel bags, fell to the forest below, allowing anyone, or anything, in the vicinity access to the addictive drug. Drew encouraged Bill to do the same, but when Bill grabbed a duffel bag of cocaine and threw it out, Drew got upset. According to Bill, moments later, Drew apologized, telling his unwitting co-conspirator, I'm really sorry for getting you involved in this. I could see this is not your thing. You're a family man. Who's thing is it very few you got to make sure this is someone's thing before you drag them into it right especially if you say well we have two choices on this mission we're either going to fly back safely or parachute i need to know that option two is an option yeah before we before i go like and again you have to tell somebody if you're going to a different continent when you take off i think bare minimum (laughs) Drew eventually threw other bags of cocaine off the side of the airplane so he could return and recover them later. He held on to one 75-pound duffel bag full and decided to bail out over Knoxville. FBI records indicate he chose Knoxville because it was a new city and he had been facing increasing pressure from law enforcement back home in Kentucky. Drew told Bill to head to Knoxville Hyatt, where Drew's girlfriend, Rebecca Sharp, was waiting. So I think they were going to land near Knoxville so Rebecca could pick them up. But instead of flying and dropping him really precisely, he started being really erratic because yeah. the jets were behind him. He and got so he's paranoid. Like, it, it was just a couple miles from the airport there, too. Mm-hmm, they weren't too far. But they did not have any planes land at the airport. That's yeah. the other thing, too. That plane, when both of you jump out, is going to land somewhere. So... You're putting a ton of other people's lives at risk because you have no idea where that's going to land or crash. It's going to crash. It's not going to land itself. No, it's going to crash. I think Drew thought, if I aim at this direction on autopilot, it will go out and crash in the ocean. It did not. That is a, that's a roll of the dice. Oh, his whole life was like, it will go this way. And the problem is, is you can think that, but reality is reality and Mm -hmm. it will smack you real hard. Mm Mm-hmm. Drew's greed would be his downfall. He had affixed a duffel bag to himself with a strap hanging from his waist. This was a deadly mistake. When Drew, strep- when Drew stepped out of the plane, investigators believed that the bag swung like a pendulum and threw off Drew's balance. He also may have been slammed against the side of the plane, breaking his ribs on impact. Drew had previously been reprimanded for opening his chute at inappropriately low heights, as low as 800 feet and had been kicked off of several drop zones for his unsafe behavior, according to FBI records. This led authorities to speculate that Drew had done the same that night, waiting until a low height to deploy, but not accounting for the increased weight from the cocaine. FAA investigators also concluded that the bag likely hit Drew during the descent, knocking him unconscious or semi-unconscious and unable to steer the chute, and eventually became tangled in the chute altogether. On the morning of September 11, 1985, 
85-year-old Knoxville resident and retired engineer Fred Myers woke to a strange sight, a man's body lying in his yard. It was Drew Thornton. So what do we think? Well, you live fast, you fall fast. You die fast. Yeah. Again, his whole thing was, oh, this is my new plan, and I'm infallible with superpowers. I'm an amazing paratrooper. I'm army trained. Well, somebody should have said, just chuck the bag and drive back for it. But I think it was this, no, that's worth $2 million. Mm -hmm. And you see the greed that someone literally traded their life for money. And then you're dead, so you can't spend it. So Yeah, it's um, it seems unnecessary i mean he did not lack anything in the area of confidence i'll give him that but that can only get you so far you got to have a good head on your shoulders as well yeah i think he was is it's like what sally denton said you know this is my last big hit this is my last big Mm -hmm. score i'm gonna i'm getting out after this like i'm gonna go straight after this and it was too tempting that last bag when I'm like, Rebecca was waiting at the Hyatt. I don't see why he didn't just ditch that bag and jump. I think if he would have not had the duffel bag with him, he would have been fine. Mm-hmm. I, I think he would have landed fine. Would he have gotten arrested? For sure. I think cops, it did not take a lot for the police to realize that those things he was throwing out were, first of all, his flight path was from Columbia and then he's throwing duffel bags out and we'll see in part two, you can trace a flight path and try to figure out what's in those bags. So I think he was, maybe he was like, my two choices are I escape with these drugs and bail and I'm gone out of the country and I have at least enough money to live for a while or I'll die and I would rather die than go back to jail because he had been in jail, you know, six months. That's long enough to be like, I don't like this. And you know that if you're caught again, you're going away for life because of all the shit you've done. And he no longer had the friends that he had mm-hmm. and that, that were able to protect him. Even or even if he still had those friends, they were not strong enough to protect him from the massive, massive. I mean, he brought back 200 pounds of cocaine and dropped it all across the, the forest, the Chattahoochee Wild. National Forest. $37 million. I mean, that's, that's why if you said, hey, Christy, I'm going to give you $37 million and you'll never have to work a day in your life. I'd be like, I would agree with that. You give me $2 million and I could probably make it last. Yeah. But so he just thought this is my retirement. And then when it was going bad, you just start scrambling. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what got him in the end. I will say for, you know, feeling sorry for him a little bit and stuff. He's a huge asshole for putting a bunch of people's lives at risk that are just complete strangers. I mean, dropping duffel bags full of these were bricks of cocaine, like football sized bricks wrapped, just stuffed in these duffel bags. You don't know who's going to come upon that. Kids, Mm -hmm. animals, whoever. Also, you're just letting a fucking plane go off to wherever it may land. Who knows if that crashes into a, a school, a hospital? Right. He was way too loose, way too casual. It was just a wheels off operation with very little regard for anyone but himself and his weird eccentric interests. No, I agree. And I think you nailed it on the head. He had no regard for anybody because he wanted his cocaine. He wanted his money. He wanted this plan. He did not care what happened, you know, and we'll see in part two, we'll talk about the aftermath, what happens, and then cocaine bear. Yeah. But it was all it was all about Drew. And now that Drew has uh, met his untimely demise, we'll see how this all unraveled for the other players in this operation mm-hmm. as well as 
Sweet, sweet, blessed cocaine bear. (laughs) Well, what I loved about the movie is that we got to see it from the bear's point of view. And that's what we'll talk about. Fuck Drew Thornton. We're out. We're, we're done with Drew Thornton. All Next time, it's all bear all the time. All bear all the time. Y'all got to go watch it. It's fun. And like I said, if gore isn't your thing, maybe you don't watch it. Maybe we just talk to you about it. But uh, if that doesn't bother you, you're not going to be disappointed. Yeah, it was a good time. It mm-hmm. knew what it was doing, and it did it well. Mm-hmm. And we will give it to you all next time. <laughs> that sounds Real sexual. Well, I, I apologize. <laughs> Heather's trying to get everybody down to a buggy. Hey. The bear buggy. Come on down to our ranch at the pipe, y'all. We're having a buggy. <laughs> if you know what I mean. Man, if nothing else comes out of this, and by this I mean the entire show. <laughs> the enterprise. If, if, if I get this nugget of information I'm looking for, it'll be all worth it. It's going to be so, so sweet. It will. I can't wait to check my email tomorrow. Let's do it. (laughs) Well, speaking of checking our email, we have been uh, checking our email feverishly for adding new cities to the tour. And we're on the cusp of being able to announce it like seconds away, but just not today. But in the meantime, if you're in Denver on April 19th, we're going to be at Comedy Works. We're going to have a blast. We had so much fun last time we were there. That's still one of my favorite shows we've ever done. And such a good venue, such yeah. a good crowd. Denver is an amazing city. If you're, if, even if you're not near Denver, if you're anywhere in the Southwest, Southwest Airlines, a friend of mine said they just flew Southwest and had an, a wonderful time. It's like 89 bucks each way to Southwest or on Southwest to Denver. Mm-hmm. I was like, I'm just going to go to Denver every other weekend. Denver's great. I love, I love it. it. And then after Denver, which we also love, Salt Lake City is going to be on April 20th. Mm-hmm. And we had a great time last time. We learned about green jello with carrots in it. That's so, right. And funeral potatoes. So mm-hmm. I cannot wait for what? 420. 420 in Salt Lake City. <laughs> so we're going to eat funeral potatoes all night. Yeah. You know what I mean. So, yeah, we'll be at Wise Guys Salt Lake City. We were at a different location. So it's Wise Guys in Salt Lake City, uh, not kind of out a little bit further. And then just a week later, we're going to be in Austin, Texas at Cap City Comedy on April 27th. We fucking love Austin. I was finding pictures to post and I was like, Austin street art. And there were so many to choose from. I couldn't even choose. Love Austin. Love that city. And then just a few days later, we're going to sister city, Houston, May 3rd. So that's all coming up. And then we have San Francisco and Los Angeles in June as well. So don't be sleeping on those tickets. Those are going fast, especially LA is getting, getting close. LA is almost sold out. So Get those tickets. Go to SinisterHood.com slash live shows and we'll see you with that full moon energy. (laughs) We love providing Sinisterhood to you at no cost. So if you like what you hear, consider supporting the show by donating to our Patreon. We're a small operation, creating this show for you by researching, writing, recording, and producing it ourselves. Any amount is sincerely appreciated and helps offset the cost of making and hosting the show. As a thank you, you'll also get some sweet perks like ad-free episodes, a Sinisterhood sticker, membership to our exclusive Patreon Facebook group for those in the rolling the airwaves and getting into it tier, a special shout out on the show, a monthly bonus mini-sode, and patron-exclusive video and audio content including Am I the Asshole, Relationship Advice, Judge Christie, Dear Sinister, True Crime Headlines, and more. And patrons in the getting into it tier are also able to vote on a bonus content segment each month they would like to see live streamed. Our bonus content live stream in March is going to be March 31st at 2 p.m. Central. Voting is going on now. Also, 
patrons get first dibs on tickets. So when we announce these shows, if you're a patron, you get to get those tickets before they go and sell to the public, including VIP, which we have a very limited amount of VIP tickets. So keep your eyes peeled for that. VIP, if not, is sold out in every city, is getting close to sold out. I mean, there's handfuls left. And then with the new one, those always sell out first. And that's so much fun. If you're wondering what a VIP is, we, you guys stick around after the show. We run off and get a drink of water, go to the bathroom, and then come out, and we'll just talk about whatever you want to talk about. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's we really do want it to feel like we're all having a big conversation, and we've had folks ask about, you know, travel. You want advice? You know, people said, oh, I miss Judge Christie, kind of. If you have someone had an advice question between their friends and asked us how we related mm-hmm. to it so it's become a good way for us to share kind of stuff that we, we maybe can't we told a whole long story in Tacoma that we're like we can't really say this on the air or on stage but we'll tell it to y'all because oh, you're our friends right. <laughs> it was like a huge story that we were got, like people got to see home videos of pedal oh god and that picture of me from that story that we talked about <laughs> so you know just whatever y'all want to talk about home videos of pedal I showed a video from my um, honeymoon not that kind of video y'all mm, we were no someone barked at a rose video <laughs> <laughs> very the wedding night video but yeah so that's part of the vip and you get a signed poster and it's a really good time it is and a picture we that's do right. a big group picture and then we post it on our social media and you get to see it and tag yourself we're all together Hmm. you also have the fun perk of access to our discord server where you can connect with other fans in real time and discuss the latest in true crime share personal ghost stories or just post adorable pictures of your pets we hop on occasionally, and we host monthly Q&As on Crowdcast, where you can ask us all your burning questions. This month is just just a week, on the 29th at 8 p.m. Central Time. For patrons not in the U.S., you have the option to pay in pounds or euros, saving you the cost of the conversion fee. Annual memberships for all tiers are also now available. Those that select this option will be rewarded with a free month of membership. For more details on all of this and specific member tiers, visit Sinisterhood.com and click Patreon on the top banner. And make sure you stick around after our sign-offs to hear your shout-out. So many of you have been tagging us in pictures of you sporting your sweet Sinisterhood merch. Keep those pictures coming. If you want to get some cool Sinisterhood swag like t-shirts, mugs, totes, and even clothes for your kiddos, visit Sinisterhood.com and click on shop on the top banner. We have a beautiful logo tee that's up there and there was a weird glitch with shipping. So if you went to go and try to buy the logo tee and you were like, shipping is like half the cost of the shirt. This is chaotic. It was. And it was an oopsie on the computer's fault. So we have reprimanded the computer. It had said, I'm so. Sorry. And but we we did. We fixed the glitch that was going on in there. So shipping is regular prices. It's reasonable. You know, it's not going to be half the price of the shirt. So go to Sinisterhood.com. Click on shop on the top banner and check out that logo tee because uh, I got I got one for Paris. And I just want to say he looks pretty good. In it. <laughs> and then you can wear it to the show. I also forgot to mention the Patreon video that just got posted for this week's bonus content might be our best video we've ever made. Thank you, Paris Brown, yeah, for and and Tether. <laughs> no, but it it is the best video we ever made because I went. Can you make it look like a, like a TV show and not like a? This is what I did on my summer vacation. <laughs> I do. I appreciate all the kind words about my editing skills, which I like to do it. But he is so good at it that it does give it well, it's a better job. So yes. you know, and we are happy to benefit from that. But it's all of the um, footage from when we went to Tacoma and Portland. Very heavy on the peculiarium, which we got some real good stuff. 
Well, that's what I envision. If y'all tell us really fun, cool, quirky places for us to go, we'll go and then we'll investigate and report back. And this one, we got a whole story about a haunted, murderous ventriloquist dummy and some silliness. I haven't recovered. I know. (laughs) We came around the corner and you went, oh, come on. (laughs) Why is it there? So if you have a place where there's ventriloquist dummies or anything haunted or horrible, please send us an email and let us know you have some tour stop recommendations so we can see some cool shit. The best thing you can do to help us grow is like, review, and follow on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And please tell a friend who you think would like us to check us out. You can also share any episode by clicking the three dots in the top right corner and share topic-based playlist from Spotify by visiting sinisterhood.com slash playlists. All of this means so much to us and really helps podcasts like us get more exposure. If you need assistance in leaving a review, you can go to sinisterhood.com slash review and it'll show you step by step on whatever platform you're using how to do that. We appreciate all the wonderful and kind reviews we have gotten so far. We're going to start posting those. So if you post a fun, kind review, you might see it on our social media soon. Nice. It's very helpful. You can also see that social media on Instagram and Twitter at Sinisterhood Pod. And you can like us on Facebook at Sinisterhood. We're on YouTube and TikTok at Sinisterhood Podcast. May I make a brief shout out? Our friend slash your husband, my friend slash your husband, Tommy Brown. Slash our producer. (laughs) Slash our producer. (laughs) Slash the most amazing person. Tommy totally revamped our YouTube. It looks amazing. There's these uh, thumbnails. It's very pretty. Go to YouTube. Subscribe to us. We'll also post videos like when we do the Patreon best of. One or two of those might be a video clip. So you might get those uh, the video version of the best of. And also we have Sinister Shorts that you can follow on there and I just, I want to give a shout out to Tommy for all he's done to revamp our YouTube. Thank you, babe. We're also on Cameo at, at cameo.com slash Sinisterhood where we can do video shout outs for whatever you want. Birthday, anniversary, congratulations. We're going to Disney World. Whatever you want, head up to uh, cameo.com slash Sinisterhood and uh, get us to say stuff. Christy, where are you at online? I am on Instagram at Christy and Wallace and Twitter and TikTok at Christy or GTFO. Heather? I'm on Twitter at MCK versus the world, and I'm on TikTok and Instagram at Heather versus the world. As always, the devil rules the airwaves. Keep it creepy. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for supporting the show. Here are your special Patreon shout outs. The Avery Brothers. Lauren C. Heather Hemmerly. Katie Sage. TC. Alexis Bell, Kaylee Vilches, Julie Adams, Kim Amaral, Chanel Regalado, Nicole Bright, Taylor M. Rain, Lizbeth Vega, Jen K., Alicia Martinez. Thank you so much for your love and support. We could not do this without you. We hope we pronounced your names correctly. We sincerely, sincerely appreciate each and every one of you. Stay safe, stay healthy, and keep it creepy. <laughs> that was a cocaine bear roar. <laughs> Say